Well, when we left Daniel two weeks ago, we saw that it was 539 B.C. That is an important date historically because it was the year that the the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. It was the year that Cyrus uh, came in and took over. And Daniel was there to see it because, of course, Daniel has been in Babylon for nearly 70 years. So he was there to see one of the promises that God gave, that the king of Babylon would be indeed punished after 70 years. Daniel found himself looking at the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, he saw that two things were promised. One, that the king of Babylon would be punished, and two... That after 70 years, the exiles, which he was one, would be returned to the land of Judah. Last, well, two weeks ago, we saw that this promise, uh, it led Daniel into a prayer of repentance, a prayer of confession, that we saw uh, in detail in the first part of chapter 9. We saw Daniel go into great lengths and great detail about the sin that he and the people of Israel had committed. And this morning, we see God's answer to Daniel's prayer. And what we'll see is that though Daniel was focused on the return of the exiles, though Daniel was focused on this 70-year time span, after which the exiles would be returned. And though Daniel was focused on the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple to return to the old covenant type of sacrifices, God's answer was that what Daniel was looking at was too small. What Daniel was looking for was going to take far longer than Daniel had ever dreamed and was going to be far greater than Daniel had conceived. God's answer was that all will be accomplished, not with the restoration of the temple, not with the return of the old covenant sacrifices, but with the ending of the temple, the ending of the old covenant sacrifices and a fulfillment through someone greater. Our passage today is Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, I'd encourage you to open them. Even if you've never done this before, I'd encourage you to do this today uh, because this is a very complex passage. Uh, And if you need a Bible to follow along, you can find a Bible in front of you, uh, underneath the seats in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 747. Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, 
I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And the decree end is poured out on the desolator. <clears throat> so before we get to verses 24 through 27, let's look briefly here at <clears throat> this interaction between Gabriel and Daniel, because notice a few things here about this encounter. Notice, first of all, that Daniel stresses twice. Two times he, he makes mention that this answer from God came while he was confessing his sin, while he was in the middle and in the throes of talking about all the many ways that he has transgressed the law of God. He wasn't in the middle of talking about how great he's done. He wasn't in the middle of talking about how many times he has succeeded in following God against all odds. He wasn't in the middle of talking about how faithful he had been to follow Jeremiah's decree to be uh, a good ambassador in exile. All of those things were probably true, but Daniel, knowing deep down how many times he had failed God, was in the midst of describing in 10 different ways how he and the people of Israel had rebelled and been treasonous against their God. And notice what Daniel says, that it was at the beginning of his pleas for mercy that a word from God went out. And Gabriel, this angel, was sent to Daniel in swift flight to tell Daniel, Daniel, I've been sent by God. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, I was sent to give you insight and understanding, for you are greatly loved. To me, that's, that's almost incredible, but it shows you the love and mercy of our God. Christian, when was the last time you considered how great God's love and mercy toward you is? Daniel is going on and on and on about how horrible he has been. And while the words of repentance and forgiveness, asking for forgiveness are on his lips, God comes with a message of, Daniel, you are dearly loved. If you are here this morning and 
you're not a Christian. And maybe you're not a Christian because you think that you're too bad for God to love. If you think that you have sinned one too many times and that God's love and mercy cannot cover your sin, that's a lie. The Bible says that God's grace and mercy is enough to cover all of your sins. Go to him as Daniel did. And if you are a Christian and and you hesitate to confess your sins to God because you think that you have sinned one too many times, how could I possibly have sinned yet again in that way against the God who saved me? Christian, that's a lie. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus yearns to have you come to him. I don't care if it's a million times and say, will you please forgive me? Daniel is in the middle of confessing sin and gets a wonderful word from God. And notice, secondly, that Daniel is, despite being taken away to Babylon as a 14-year-old teenage boy and being in Babylon, being immersed in that culture, being immersed in paganism, being brainwashed in the University of Babylon, despite being surrounded by Babylonian gods now for most of his life, notice he is still calculating time according to the sacrificial system of the temple. How amazing is that? He says that Gabriel came to him in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. After all of these years in Babylon, his heart and his mind is still drawn to his homeland, still drawn to the city of his God, to the point where he still calculates time according to the sacrificial system that he was taught. When was the last time he saw a sacrifice? There there have been no sacrifices for a long time because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple while Daniel was working for him, while Daniel was relatively a young man. There is no temple. He knows that, and nonetheless, his heart and mind are still there. You know, we had these communicant members stand up here this morning. Parents, especially those of you with little ones, but really all of you. Those of us who have older children can tell you how quickly time flies. My third son, Isaac, was just standing up here, vowing. My oldest son, Luke, is about to head off to college. And my dad and I were just reminiscing about how vividly we can remember him sitting in a high chair. It doesn't seem that long ago. What parents will you instill in the hearts and minds of your children while there's time? Because when they head off into the world, where they go into college or wherever they're gonna go, they will be, like Daniel, immersed in a different mindset, a different worldview. You have a small window to implant the things of God into them. You have a small window to bring them 
on Sunday mornings to worship. You have a small window to pray with them during the week and to have home uh, Bible studies or worship services or whatever you want to do. When they leave your home, what will they carry with them in their hearts and minds? Notice that Daniel is confessing his sins and he is focused on the temple, your holy hill. He's focused on the return after 70 years. And Gabriel comes to bring this answer to his prayer, which begins in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. <coughs> now, before we get into uh, this verse, and especially verses 25 through 27, I just want to say that uh, this text is hands down the hardest text I've ever had to work through, and it is the one that has most made me want to get up here, read the text, tell you I don't know what it means, and sit down. <laughs> uh, so there is no way that in this one sermon, uh, I will answer every question you have. As I stand up here this morning, I tell you, I still have questions about the text. As I stand up here this morning, I tell you, I may change my mind in the middle of next week about some of the things that I say. I can't tell you how many times <laughs> this week I had my head in my hands wrestling with what was being said. Brilliant scholars, all of whom I love, come to different conclusions about this text. But I want us to think about two things before we look into this. One is that, in a way, this is good. Because our God, Christian, is incomprehensible. We tend to think that if we don't figure out every jot and tittle of the Bible, that's bad. In seminary, I had an Old Testament professor tell me that the Jews considered it a good thing. That when the Old Testament Jewish person read texts of Scripture and came away thinking that some of it was mysterious, that some of it they could not plumb the depths of, they considered it to be proof that it was God's Word. That any God that we could figure out is not a God worth worshiping. At the same time, I want us to think, and I think this is true about this text, what I've said about all of this apocalyptic literature in Daniel is that if we focus on what is clear, and we don't lose the forest for the trees, then I think this text, when we look at what is clear, is one of the most encouraging texts in the entire Old Testament. Verse 24, verse 24 is, I believe, a summary of everything that verses 25 and 27 through 27 are going to talk about. <coughs> Notice 
that all of this, what's about to be talked about, is decreed by God. Seventy weeks are decreed. We've said it before, but it's worth saying again because the book of Daniel continues to pound into us that God is sovereign, that our God plans and executes history exactly as he wants it to fall out. These 70 weeks are decreed by God. They are guaranteed to happen. We can put it in stone. If God decrees it, he will bring it to pass. Now notice that Daniel is focused on 70 years. He, that's what he thought about when he went to and, and, and read from the prophet Jeremiah. But when Gabriel comes with this message from God, Gabriel says, Daniel, it's not so much 70 years, it's 70 weeks. Notice here, 70 weeks. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, right off the bat, before we get into anything else, this presents a difficulty. Because where our English translation here in the ESV says 70 weeks, technically that's not what the Hebrew word says. The Hebrew word there says simply 70 sevens. It doesn't say 70 weeks. Now, that word sevens is used when describing weeks, but when it's used to describe, say, we were saying weeks of years, 70, uh, 77 years or something, it would say 70 sevens of years. The years would be put in there. But it doesn't say that. It leaves it out. The time duration, in other words, is not placed in here. Now, many scholars see that what God is telling Daniel is that what he is going to do will take place not in 70 years, but in 70 weeks of years. Meaning that what God, is, many scholars take this to be a literal time span, that what God is telling Daniel is salvation is going to come in 490 years. Again, the problem is it doesn't say that. <laughs> you, you have to import that into the text. That what, what God is saying is that, Daniel, the answer will come in 70 times 7 years or 490 years. Now, that could be right. For half the week last week, I thought it was. But for now, I don't believe that that's exactly what it means. I, I don't think that this is 490 years literally. I think that what God is giving Daniel is a figurative time span of 70 sevens. Again, what is clear though? What's very clear and what we don't have to speculate about is that there is this definitive time span. Whether you want to believe it's 490 years or a figurative length of time, God is telling Daniel that in a specific definitive time period called 77s, the end result are that six things are going to happen. 
One, transgression is going to be finished. Two, sin is going to be ended. Three, iniquity is going to be atoned for. Four, everlasting righteousness is going to be brought in. Five, visions and prophets will be sealed. No longer needed. Old Testament prophecy and visions will be done away with. And sixth, a most holy place will be anointed. That Hebrew word can also be a most holy one will be anointed. In other words, God is telling Daniel, whether you see it as 490 years or a figurative time, that that there is this definite period of time in which all that is necessary for salvation will be accomplished. It's not simply that the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt along with the temple, but that sin is going to be dealt with once and for all. That righteousness will be brought in once and for all. Why does he speak of 77s? If, and maybe he even means 490 literal years, but, but even if he doesn't, uh, why, why speak in this kind of language? I mean, why not just say in 490 years? Why not just give the amount of time? Why this, this weird way of speaking of time? Well, I think, and this is what landed me on thinking it's not 490 literal years, it, you, it takes you back to Leviticus chapter 25. <coughs> In Leviticus chapter 25, and remember Leviticus is part of the law that was given to Israel before it entered the promised land. In Leviticus 25, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you will sow your field and just like we all do, plant your seeds. You'll prune your vineyard, you'll gather its fruits. You'll do that for six years, just like we all do. If you have a home garden like we do, or if you know farmers, they, they do that. They sow seed and all of that. But, in, but God said, in the, in the seventh year, don't do any of that. Let your land lie fallow. Don't sow your seed. Don't gather your crops. Just leave it alone. Give it a Sabbath rest. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the Lord, for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, and it will be a year of solemn rest for the land. And then he says this, I want you also not only to do that one every seven year rest for the land, but I want you to count seven weeks of years. See here now it actually gives the seven weeks of years. Seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years will give you 49 years. And after 49 years, people of Israel, I want you to sound the loud trumpet on the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout the the land, and you will consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty to the land throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It will be a jubilee for you. The the year of Jubilee. The people of Israel never obeyed these commands. In the entire time they were in the promised land, they never kept these 
laws. Israel was supposed to give the land a Sabbath and let God feed them, but they got too hung up on if we don't sow our crops, we're not going to eat. Israel was supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. After 49 years in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, what was supposed to happen was liberty was to be proclaimed throughout the land. If you had incurred a great debt so that you had to sell your land to pay off the debt, in the year of Jubilee, you would be given your land back and all debt would be canceled. Whatever it was that you hadn't paid back would be canceled. If you had incurred a great debt so that you had to sell yourself into slavery, in the year of Jubilee, you would be set free from your obligations. The year of Jubilee, after seven sevens, was to be this ultimate Sabbath with when all debts were canceled. It was to be a, a great foreshadowing of the gospel. The people never obeyed it. They never got to see the year of Jubilee. They never got to set free and release people from debt. So, God punished them for it. And part of the punishment that God gave to the people of Israel is explained he said, when you disobey me and I send you away into a foreign land, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land, the land shall rest and it will enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. God says, I'm going to get the year of Jubilee whether you do it or not if I have to send you into exile to make it happen. So why is God now telling Daniel not seven sevens, but 70 sevens? I don't think it's because it's 490 years. I think it's because symbolically God is saying what I am about to do in 70 sevens worth of time is the ultimate jubilee. If you think that the day of Jubilee, the setting free of debts, happened under the old covenant. Wait till you see what I do with the new covenant. It is going to be 70 times 7, the Jubilee of Jubilees, when transgression will be finished, when sin will be ended, when iniquity will be atoned for, when everlasting righteousness will be brought in, when vision and profit will no longer be needed, and when a most holy one will be anointed. And then Gabriel gives Daniel a breakdown of those sevens. Verses 25 to 27, again, are, it's the most difficult text I've ever looked at. Uh, it has more interpretations than you can uh, than you could possibly ascertain in one week's worth of study. Uh, Jerome, Jerome actually looked at it and he looked at all of the different interpretations. He came away with nine possible interpretations. And he basically said, you know, I'm not even going to preach on this. I'm just going to present all nine and then walk away and leave it up to the people to decide for themselves. But if we look at verses 25 to 27, again, there's no way that we're going to look at every detail of this. But I don't think we really have to. If you want to look into more details and send me emails, uh, you know, in the coming weeks and months, fine. You and I can get together for lunch and we can discuss more. 
<clears throat> but really, when you look at 25 through 27, all, the, all the main, uh, these different views really break down to three main views. One view, which you might call the critical view, those scholars think that 25 through 27, it all happened during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and all culminated with Hanukkah. And their conclusion is that, well, Daniel was simply wrong. Hanukkah was great, but it didn't bring in everything that was promised. There's another view, which maybe I, I might call the, the dispensational view, which says that some of 25 through 27 has to do with Christ's first coming, but a lot of it has to do with his second coming. And that there's a ton that still needs to happen in the future. And then there is the third view, and it's the view that I've been convinced of, which actually is the one that most Christians held to for many, many years. I call it the traditional view, is that all of this, 25 through 27, has to do with Christ's first coming. In this traditional view, there are two things here in verses 25 to 27. So if you just summarize all of 25 to 27, there are two main things that happen. The first is everything that the coming Messiah will accomplish. And the second is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in light of everything the Messiah has accomplished. And I think the key to understanding this prophecy, 25 through 27, correctly is to properly understand who it is that's being talked about throughout. Because when you look at the other two views, the critical view and the dispensational view, they have a lot of things not in common. But one of the things that they have in common is that the people that are named in here, notice no one's named. It's not like when Isaiah names Cyrus. Cyrus is coming, my, my servant. And no one's really given the kind of description that you get in the other prophecies of Daniel like you get when you say, oh, there's no, that's got to be Antiochus Epiphanes. Nobody's given that kind of description here. So you can't, it, it's, it's hard to know uh, who it is that's being talked about. But the dispensational and critical view both believe that when you look at all of these people, like the anointed one, the prince in verse 25, the, the anointed one and the prince in 26, the one who makes covenant, the one who puts an end to sacrifice and offering, the one who makes desolate, those are all different people. And they try to figure out who it is that's being talked about, and they all come to different conclusions. And it all gets very complicated. But I think that the correct answer is also the simplest, which is that all of these refer to Christ because he is the point of everything. And I think a, a translation that was very helpful for me this week was uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Another English translation, very faithful, but just translates it a little bit differently. And listen to how it's translated, because I think this clarifies it. Verse 25, know and understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 
It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. In other words, what Daniel's being told is that there is this Messiah coming. In Hebrew, it says anointed one. But this anointed one, this Messiah, this prince, who is not only an anointed one, but also a prince, is coming. And he's coming at the end of 69 weeks, 69 sevens. Prior to his coming, there's a time period of seven sevens, a, a shorter time period where the temple is going to be rebuilt. That time of rebuilding is going to be a time of difficulty. We know that when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we see, we, we even preached on that. We know how difficult it was for them to rebuild everything. There was opposition all the time. We also know, and Daniel knows, that there's going to be great opposition coming in the form of Antiochus Epiphanes as the Messiah, this prince, is awaiting. But that at the end of this 69 sevens, the Messiah, the prince, will arrive. He is going to be the anointed one unlike any other anointed one. Before Daniel's prophecy, there were anointed ones, Samuel, David, they were anointed with the Holy Spirit. But as we did our prayer of confession, we know David was pleading with God, take not your Holy Spirit from me, because he knew that God could withdraw his Holy Spirit. But this anointed one, by the time of Daniel, the anointed one was the one who was going to have the Holy Spirit without limit. Isaiah had prophesied. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He is the Messiah who is to come after 69 weeks. And notice then what happens to him. In verse 26, after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Interesting, the language that is used here. The Messiah, after this 69 sevens, after or during the 70th seven, during this ultimate jubilee, when you would think that the anointed one would come in and win the day, he's cut off and has nothing. Another way to translate that is the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. That word, that Hebrew word, cut off, means a violent death. A violent death for a transgressor. The Messiah, in other words, doesn't come in and during the, the, the 70th uh, seven, when this ultimate jubilee, he doesn't come in and, and and win the day and, and ride it on a war horse, but he faces utter rejection by man and God for, for sin, a violent death. But it was not a sin that he had committed, not for himself, for others. And in verse 27, we see that this cutting off occurs in the middle of the 70th seven. Verse 27, he this Messiah Prince will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. The language of making a firm covenant is the same language as being cut off, cutting a covenant. This anointed one, this 
priest, this prince, is going to be cut off for other people's sin, and in him it will fulfill a covenant. And in doing so, in fulfilling this covenant, he is going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. In other words... He is going to do away with the sacrificial system in the temple. By this one sacrifice that he will give, the temple will no longer be needed. When he is sacrificed for sin, he is the final sacrifice, the only one that is needed. That's the first thing, the the first coming of Christ and everything that he accomplished. And the second thing that we see is the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what we see in all the other statements here. The people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. Until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Notice how Daniel here speaks, uh, this vision as speaks of the abomination of desolation referring to the destruction of the temple. Jesus refers to Daniel. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross, it says Jesus left the temple and he was going away. His disciples came to point out the buildings to the temple, but he answered them, you see all these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In A.D. 70, when the Roman soldier Titus came in to destroy the temple and destroy the city of Jerusalem, it was the Christians of all people that fled to the hills and were saved. Everyone else ran to the city and was destroyed because they heard what Jesus said. Jesus specifically referred to the destruction of the temple as the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel. But wait a second, you might be saying, just as I did. It says the people of the coming prince, meaning the Messiah, will destroy the city? If the coming prince is the Messiah, then you're telling me that he is the one who ultimately brought judgment on the temple and the city of Jerusalem? Yes. Yes. That's what Jesus said. Why? Because as one Old Testament scholar puts it, as soon as Jesus died on the cross, the Jerusalem temple was functionally obsolete. That's why when Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, symbolizing the final departure of the Lord from his former abode, never to return. The sentence was carried out in A.D. 70. In other words, Daniel was being told by the people that the people of the Messiah would once again destroy Jerusalem and its sanctuary in exactly the same way they had in Daniel's own day through their disobedience and rebellion. When Jesus came, he said, I, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of heaven. Jesus kept pointing to himself, and they rejected him. They rejected him and said, no, we don't want you. We want the temple. And when Jesus died on the cross, 
He made the temple obsolete, and he said, this temple is going to be leveled because it's no longer needed and it will be judged. Daniel 77 is a difficult text, but I think if we look at the overall picture, it is a marvelous text. Because when we combine Daniel 77s with Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we realize that the book of Daniel gave to the world a 100-year window in which the Messiah would arrive and in which he would accomplish everything he came to fulfill. The Messiah would come, we know from the visions given to Daniel in chapter 2 and 7, the Messiah would come sometime between the start of the Roman Empire in 27 BC, and he would complete everything necessary for salvation before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Is it no wonder then that that during Jesus' day there were so many people coming claiming to be the Messiah? There were false messiahs all over the place. They all got put down by Rome. Is it no wonder then that there were so many people looking out for the Messiah in Jesus' day? Because Daniel had told them when he would arrive. Why do you think the Magi showed up bearing gifts from Persia? the wise men from the east. It's because they were studying Daniel's texts. Daniel, the ultimate magi, and they knew when the Messiah was to come. 500 years after after Gabriel's message to Daniel, when Gabriel came to Daniel and said, you are greatly loved, 500 years later, Gabriel came swiftly with another message to another person who he said had found favor with God. This time, Gabriel's message was different. He wasn't predicting the future. He said, Mary, you're going to bear a son, and you are going to call him Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, it's time. Daniel's 77s are here. You, Mary, are going to bear the anointed one, the Messiah, the Prince, and he is going to finish everything that Daniel spoke about. And when Jesus came on the scene, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. One thing that almost passed me by, but I'll close with this. It's interesting, as I mentioned earlier, that Daniel received this wonderful message from Gabriel at the time of the evening sacrifice. What time was that? Three o'clock. Three o'clock. How appropriate then that it was at the time of the evening sacrifice, three o'clock, that the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, when he was cut off with nothing, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off 
He was separated from his father for the first time, but not for his own sins. From the, he was separated for the sins of his people, exactly as was told to Daniel. And knowing he had accomplished everything, he cried out, it is finished. I've done it all. E.J. Young, one Old Testament scholar that I gleaned a lot from this week, he says this, when our Lord ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended, there remained not one of the six items of Daniel 9.24 that was not fully accomplished. 